Hey y'all, Rick Houston here, and I want to tell you about my new show, the Moonshine and Motorsports Racing Podcast. I've partnered up with the state of North Carolina Department of Natural and Cultural Resources to help uncover the history behind moonshining mountain boys, professional wheelmen, and the backwoods and city lights of the Tar Heel State. In the first episode, I sat down with Winston Kelly at the NASCAR Hall of Fame for a little behind-the-scenes gossip about Junior Johnson's engineering skills. He's got two things in his hand, pipe wrench and channel lock pliers, and they weren't new. They had been been around the block a time or two. What's the first deal they built, I bet? No, no, you know, I think they were, the the pliers had been red before, but paint had worn off. And in the second episode, I talked to a professional hillbilly, a.k.a. Dr. Daniel Pierce of UNC Asheville, to find out the real history of moonshiners and their battles with the revenuers. He wrote about one of his experience of trying to chase down this uh, this bootlegger and this this souped up car, and he he complained that the government gave him these piece of crap, cheapo cars, and that, that were really no match. But he thought he was doing pretty good, and then the guy just hits it and just takes off and practically disappears. But then the guy makes a bootleg turn uh, and comes back towards him. And as he said, it was a game of chicken, and I was the chicken. And so he ran off the road. And actually, he was the guy who who caught Junior Johnson at his daddy's steal when Junior got tangled up in a a barbed wire fence. So check out the Moonshine and Motorsports Racing Podcast, available on YouTube, DailyDownForce.com, and all of your favorite podcasting platforms. And be sure to check out my regular show on NASCAR history, the Scene Vault Podcast. Hey there, NASCAR fans. Have you got your copy of the latest edition of NASCAR Pole Position Print Magazine? If not, there's no better time than now to subscribe at PolePositionMag.com. NASCAR Pole Position is the only print magazine covering NASCAR. Officially licensed by NASCAR, NASCAR Pole Position Magazine is published throughout the NASCAR season, and each edition is an instant collector's item backed with great feature stories and photography. The magazine is even mailed to you in a poly bag for those who love to collect NASCAR memorabilia. At PolePositionMag.com, you can even find past issues available to purchase. Get your subscription to NASCAR Pole Position and get great NASCAR content delivered straight to your mailbox throughout the season. Learn more at PolePositionMag.com. That's PolePositionMag.com. Hello, my name is Rick Houston, and welcome to the Scene Vault Podcast, your source for all things NASCAR history. Coming off turn four, I saw him pull down low, head to the pits, and I started yelling, he's out of gas, he's out of gas. I said, do we have enough? He said, okay, I'll let you get a contract, and you, know, you can go drive for junior. And he's under one condition, when you come back. There's one race in the NASCAR record book that has no winner, and I did win that race, and someday I will get credit for it. Today, NASCAR and all of us associated in any way with NASCAR. Forget its past, as today we don't have any future. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Scene Vault Podcast, where Dawsonville, Georgia is the center of the known universe. (laughs) Especially the pool room. (laughs) Steve, this week we have the first of what's probably going to be three installments of the Bill Elliott interview. I gained a whole new respect 
for him because the two of us just sat down in a conference room and it was just me and him. And we talked about his career, and I asked just about every question that I could possibly think of. As I mentioned a couple of weeks ago, I had eight pages. Oh, goodness. And I asked every single one of them. There was a time, and I think we're going to talk about it a little bit, Yeah, when you couldn't get that kind of interview out of Bill Elliott, no matter how hard you tried. Next up, let's see what we can do with Ernie Elliott. <laughs> <laughs> Good luck. <laughs> That's going to be the trick there. Now, Steve, we have that part of the interview with Bill Elliott. We're going to talk about his early days in racing. We're going to talk about some of the struggles that he had sure. trying to make it to the top. And also, we're going to talk about how he reacted to some of the attention that he received because he basically went from an independent driver to the top of Mount Everest right. very quickly. Right. And for a guy like Bill, that wasn't all it was cracked up to be. Well, he found it a bit uncomfortable to be in the spotlight. I think he found it a whole lot. Well, <laughs> kind of being Uncom nice. But, yeah. But, uh, yeah, it was a new position for him, and he just took quite a while to adapt to it. And in the second segment, we're going to talk about the 1981 Dover race, one we think, <laughs> by Jody Ridley. Gene Granger wrote the race lead, and he called it in the first paragraph one of the most bizarre finishes in NASCAR history. And you know what? I agree with old Gene on that one. <laughs> <laughs> well, I do too. And the problem centers around NASCAR's scoring system at the time, which, of course, was not technologically perfect by any stretch of imagination. It was done by cards and pencils and pens. You know, I actually got to score a race at Daytona one year. I think I was scoring Dale Jarrett's Bush car. Well, that would be something I would think you would remember very well. It's kind of an arduous task. I mean, you had to pay attention to Dale's car every single lap, right? I had to pay attention to his car every single lap, but at Daytona, you know, it wasn't that hard. But to do that at Bristol? Yeah. No. Yeah. There's I, not enough money in the world. No. Uh-uh. <laughs> Steve, this week we do have new Patreon support from Chad R. Knappen, Brandon Johnston, and Brian Kelb. And Steve, Brian has a vintage NASCAR t-shirt business that he runs. Really? Yeah. You ought to see some that. of the t-shirts that he has. I think I'm going to try to work a deal to where I get a Bobby Hillen Trap Rock Industries t-shirt. <laughs> oh, that far yeah. back, huh? Wait, I shouldn't say that because, you know, certain people who hear this podcast who collect vintage NASCAR t-shirts, they might try to, you know, yeah. get it before I do. Now, <laughs> that can't happen. That okay. can't happen on the Bobby Hillen t-shirt. No way, no how. Yeah, go for it, Rick, by all means. And again, Steve, I have a stack of envelopes with old Grand National Scene newspapers ready to ship out. The deal that we talked about last week, going pretty well. What we announced was I had come across a stack of old Grand National Scenes from late 1987 through 1988. And for $5 a month, you get one issue. $10 a month, you get two. 20 bucks a month, you get four. And so on and so forth. Right. So. Do the math. <laughs> and as long as these papers hold out, you guys are welcome to them. Well, we just finished talking about vintage T-shirts. Now, if you want something vintage, these issues of scene have got to be yours. If the newspapers that we wrote for are vintage, what does that make us? <laughs> like fine wine. 
Vintage. <laughs> Listeners, patreon.com slash the same vault podcast, paypal.me slash the same vault podcast. Help us out. You have heard the type of content that we're putting out. It is quality content. It's not available anywhere else. We're doing our best to continue doing that, and every little bit helps out. And the guests that we've got coming up, Bill Elliott, Dave Marcus. How about that? And then who knows who might come down the pot. I read in an interview that Ernie did with Grand National Illustrated back in the late 80s, early 90s. And he said that your dad, George, decided to take the team Winston Cup racing back in the mid-70s. And Ernie said that the two of you kind of maybe disagreed with that, that maybe you were stepping up a little too soon. Oh, absolutely. I mean, Do you really? My dad always wanted us to... He felt like that was the future of racing is what NASCAR was all about. And he kind of kept pushing us to go that direction. But, you know, I hadn't done anything but short track race in the local area there around home. And, you know, to step into a cup car at that point in time uh, was was a, a far step before I needed to go, I felt like. Yeah. And, I, and, and Ernie and I, we talk a lot. And, I mean, we're just trying to be honest about it. But... You know, my dad, when he gets something in his head, he was hard to, to change. So there you go. Here we are. Does that run in the family? It could. <laughs> I think Ernie got the brunt of it. Now, those early years, you pretty much stuck exclusively to the bigger tracks like Daytona, Talladega, Atlanta, Charlotte, Michigan, and so forth. Was that because they paid more, or maybe they suited your driving style better? Yeah, the reason we went to them, A, is – you know, we, we tried to focus on the races that would get you more coverage. You know, so okay. if you ran well, you know, you if you went to any of the short tracks, you know, I mean, you take, for example, look what the Woods Brothers did and a lot of the guys did in that era. You know, they didn't even show up to a lot of places Yeah, as, as time went on there. So we felt like that if you, A, they, they paid better money if you did make the race which still wasn't a lot of money back in those days. But still, that was the, the biggest thing that we looked at was, was, A, if you got, you know, they might be on a, a some sort of television deal at some point in time yeah. as time went on. And so that's kind of the way we looked at it. There were some pretty interesting stories in Grand National scene back in those early days that kind of spoke to the difficulties that you guys were having keeping up financially. You were able to go to the second race at Michigan in 1978 after some fans collected some money for you. And then there was another story in 1980 that said that you'd had to go find an actual nine to five job. Well, that was probably in the near future, but (laughs) (laughs) I mean, back then, I mean, you got to understand where we came from. I mean, my dad, we, the, the first cup car we had was an old Richie Panch car that he got somehow he got from Bobby Allison. I don't have any idea what he paid Bobby for that thing, but it was, um, it was just a pretty well-used-up old Torino, Ford Torino, and then we kind of nursed it along and, you know, went to some races, and, you know, we were we were kind of doing things, and, you know, we were doing everything we could do. I mean, the, the shop we had there at Dawsonville, we we would burn. We'd go out and cut wood, and we'd burn. And we had a wood stove, so we used <laughs> – I mean, we yeah, and we did everything we could, and I mean, I didn't have any equipment. I mean, I had a. Well, that's how they heat Hendrick Motorsports, isn't it? Uh, yeah, with well, the wood stuff. <laughs> I, I wouldn't do that. Yeah, 
I told Rick, uh, to get off on that, I told Rick I went to his shop back several years ago, and I said, if I'd have had a race team and come up here and went through your shop, I'd have went straight home and closed my shop. <laughs> but, but I mean, it was just a, a tough time. I mean, we, we struggled in a lot of different ways. I mean, we'd go, we'd go around a hotel room and sleep about 10 people in it. We'd take the mattress off no the kidding. box springs. We did everything wow. we could do. I mean, but... We had no money. We, I mean, and and back then, I mean, we were trying to get four and five hundred dollars just to go to, you know, to, to help out yeah. to go to a race. And I mean, you talk about five hundred dollars, you can't take, you know, a no. handful of people out and have lunch, have a dinner, right, and not spend close to that this yeah. day and time. Was there ever a point where you were maybe close to walking away from the sport, or was there just enough hope? You know, you were getting some pretty decent finishes. Well, I, it wasn't till till really Harry Mellon came along okay. that we finally was able to at least have some glimmer of a chance. Yeah. I mean, before that, you had no chance. I mean, right. yeah, we ran decently a time or two, and you know, we just we survived when a lot of people didn't, and we ran, you know, relatively okay. But you know, there was still you look back then, and you know, the attrition of the cars and the 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 way people race in were. A lot different than what they are today so it's uh, you know I'm sure there was times I felt like I probably needed to go get a nine-to-five job or a it for us it was like all day and all night job because yeah. that's what we did pretty much in that, in that era. Now late 1978 you rented an Oldsmobile from Benny Parsons to run at Atlanta how did that come about and also how big a deal was it for you to be running something other than a Ford? Well my dad struggled with that decision pretty hard. <laughs> but at the point in time, we just wanted to try something just to see what what difference there was. And uh, we we tried it, and which Ernie was doing engines for a lot of different manufacturers at that point in time, and we were doing some for Chevrolet and, you know, s- some Ford stuff. So, you know, we just thought we would uh, – Benny had an extra car, and we thought we would give it a try and see what it was like. And, you know, I think – at the point in time, things changed there in a pretty short period of time after that. And, you know, it, it made it more, I think, uh, easier for a Ford to run or or start to be more competitive for a Ford right. to run. And, yeah. and we just felt like that we focused on it and do what we needed to do. And then that would make Daddy happy. So we, that's what we did. Now, you went to Michigan in the fall of 1980, and apparently you did get a couple of offers of help. From what I understand from Grand National Scene, one guy offered you a ton of money for the next year's Daytona 500, and that was about twice as much as what Harry was offering for the whole season, yet you went with Harry. Well, you know, I don't remember. I, I just know when we sat down with, with with Harry Melling, it was kind of a deal it, that Ernie and I, I'll never forget, we drove, we got in a pickup truck and drove to Michigan straight through met with him, turned around, got in the truck, and drove back. And, you know, Harry, I never had a contract with Harry. I mean, we Did just, you not? Yeah, no, we never had – we had never had no kind of agreement. I mean, it, <laughs> I mean, he did what he said he was going to do, and I did what I said I was going to do. And, I mean, that's where we left it. And, I mean, he was – he was just that kind of guy. And, I mean, he – he did work for us, but 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 you but you look back and you look at all the people that helped get you to that point. I mean, Benny Parson was was a very strong 
figure that helped us get involved with 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 Harry Melling and you know he was doing oil pump business and um Benny was uh, a sales rep for a lot of the product that Harry was selling at that point in time. So a lot of things came together and a lot of things made it work out. And that was the, man, that was just a key part. You know, you, you know, you, you open a lot of doors throughout your lifetime, you know, and, and we got a, a little toe stuck in it. And then we got another toe and another toe. And finally it kind of came together. And finally you kicked it in. That, well, it, it, it was still a point of a lot of struggle, a lot of hard work, and a lot of dedication. And, you know, when I look back at my upbringings and all the, the worth ethic that my dad taught me at the point in time early on is if it hadn't been for that, we'd have never made it by no means. All of us, the, the Dan and Ernie both. Yeah. Once you finally got a little bit of backing from Harry— and you had a little bit of breathing room, how much of a difference was there for you? Did it allow you to maybe concentrate on actually racing a little bit? Uh, we were just still doing more. I mean, at that point in time, you, you had – there was just a few of us. I mean, in in the early 80s, there was, there was myself and Ernie that did all the car stuff, and then we had guys around that helped us from time to time uh, put things together. And – you know, you just had no, you had nothing. I mean, and and back then it was, you know, you tried to prepare and focus yourself. Like for example, we we worked all winter long to go to Daytona, and you know, Daytona was a race that kind of would make you or break your year, you know. And I know we went down there in '79 and we missed the race, and that was kind of devastating because you know you spent a lot of time and a lot of effort, and we were fast enough to make the race but we just had problems in the 125 so you know it's just uh i never thought that i ever made it i just i just worked and tried to keep the goal of you know whatever happened the past sunday there's another sunday coming up we need to we need to fix our mistakes and try to be better or, or try to run better as time goes on i always look to the future i never look to the past and you know with and when, Mer- and when Harry Melling came along, we just tried to put it, keep putting things together. And, you know, at the end of, uh, let's see, he sponsored us for, what, uh, 10 or 12 races in 81. And then we went into 82, and he ended up buying the team from my dad, which it was nothing there really to buy a couple of cars and some few parts and pieces. And uh, So this and, wasn't a multi-million-dollar transaction? More like about a couple of thousand <laughs> but I, I mean i don't know what my dad got out of the stuff i mean it couldn't have been a lot of money at the point in time because like i said we just didn't have anything and then we went on to into 82 and, and harry sat down with us and said you know we'll run whatever races you feel comfortable running because we'd only run you know 12 or so 10 or 12 the past number of years so in 82 i think we ran close to 20 races and then in 83 he decided we kind of put it together and said hey let's try to run all the races yeah and you know then by the end of 83 you know we we had some we started racking up some pretty good finishes and and running pretty good so but you know you look at 81 and from 80 to 81 so many things changed you know yeah. the cars changed from the big from the very big cars smaller cars so you were starting out more on an equal basis then then your manufacturers started getting more involved as the 80s rolled on and and ford started to be more 
more on the scene and the 83 T-Bird came out and it was kind of a, a real step ahead of everybody else because aerodynamically it was it was such a, a slick car and so when really when 83 came along that was kind of put everything together and we were able to to win the the last race at Riverside in 83 and then then 84 we just started putting more things together and things started coming together and we were we were rolling and when 85 came along it was like everything just hit right on the money but then by the time 86 came along it was you know we had worked so hard through 85 it took its toll on us in 86 I think we weren't there wasn't enough of us to really brunt what we were trying to do year in year out how big a deal was it to win that race at Riverside oh it was huge I mean it was I mean, we felt like we were close to winning, and I never, you know, I never looked at things of being that it's, I've got to win a race. I just felt like we just keep trying and keep going, and, you know, things would hopefully eventually come together, and, and they did. You go into 1984, and you do win those three races, and you got sponsorship from Coors and all that, and things were definitely looking up. But with more success on the racetrack, you started to get more attention from a lot of different places. Was that something that you were used to? Absolutely not. I mean, I was more comfortable under the race, not in front of the camera. You don't say. <laughs> and, and I had a, I, I struggled with that a lot. And, and you know, you, you look through, and that's what I tell people today, that, you know, you don't understand until you get put in this position. I mean, in, in high school, I couldn't get up in front of a group of three or four people and say two words. Holy cow. You know, I, yeah. I was yeah. the shyest person yeah. probably in the classroom. And to, be, to, be, to come from that and be able to be put in the position you were put into eight, in 1985 was like light years. And, and then you, you try to put it in perspective from our side. I mean, we were working 24-7. I mean, we were 365. doing everything we could yeah. do to get stuff done, you know. And, and, I, and I definitely made some people mad. You know, I'll be the first to admit that. And I, I probably set some wrong examples in a lot of ways. But, but I was handling the things the best I could with what I, at the point in time we did. And I finally... After a period of time, I realized, hey, look, there, there's a there's a time for media, there's a time for fans, there's a time for the race car, and there's a t- personal time. You know, when we and I said, look, we need to separate this out. And by the, I think by the end of the, by the end of '85, by the time we got to Darlington, things were fine. I finally got kind of things halfway figured out. I didn't yeah. have everything figured out, but I was able to kind of keep my sanity and and be able to in the the biggest pleasure for me was when I sat down in a race car and put the window net up and put my helmet on. I mean, that was that was my time. That was my I got away from everybody and everything. And that yeah. was that was where I, I I was at peace. So, you know, you look at kind of what it drew you into and it just helps you more and more get in a race car because the thing you love to do, you know, you had to put up with a lot of stuff outside of that, but you could you were starting to be able to put things in perspective and, you know, it's like I'll give you one example as as 85 went through there. It's like, you you know, used to you'd walk through through downtown Dawsonville. I mean, there wasn't that many people there anyway, but you'd say, you know, you'd meet somebody and say, hey, how you doing, you know, and and, and go from there. And then by the time 85 rolled along, it, it's like somebody walk up to me and they, <laughs> yeah. I'd, I'd look at them and say, what do you want? Because they want something. 
you know, instead yeah. of being the person you were, it changed you into something, yeah. the person you really wasn't. And I think that's what I admire about some of the people. I mean, you look at you look at Richard Petty and what he's done for the sport and, and some of the guys that's been able to, to go through a lot of difficulties and still maintain their presence and kind of the personality that they are. But, you know, he was – he was able to come through and learn, you know, it's just like all of us. We all had bad times. You know, in today's society is too quick to pick up the telephone and videotape anything you say wrong or yes, anything sir. you do wrong. Yeah. And back then, you know, you could make mistakes and learn from them and go on, and they didn't come back to every time you pick something up, the social media world is picking it up and saying, yeah. oh, he said this or he said that, or we're yeah. taking it out of context. And, and I think that's where I disagree with a lot of things in today's world is you're too vulnerable in, in things of happening today versus what used to could happen and, and, and learn and live and work through things. And, you know, now it's just all about, well, we've got to be on this or, you know, we've got to have everything out in it's just like if, if I'd had the deal back in the 80s. For me back then, it was like, well, when are you going to win a race? It wasn't like pressure on me to win a race. It was like supporting you to win a race. And now yeah. in today's world, it's like they just put pressure on you. Yeah. Hey, when are you going to win a race? It's like, hey, you got to win a race. Or we're going to bash on social media. You know what yeah. I mean? Yeah. So, yeah. I don't know. It's just such a different time and space. And I, I really, I look back on all the things and all the people that, that you touched and affected throughout your career and the things, the fun that I had. And, and really, I had a lot of fun through my deal and I enjoyed a lot of it. And I felt like, and, you know, I, I still talk to some of the, like every time we go to the racetrack, I usually run into Dale Inman, and he and I with Dale. <laughs> Dale's always funny, and it comes up with something, and we'll laugh about. Boy, I'd like to be a fly on that wall. Oh, it's, it's <laughs> and, and we talk about things, and and really, the the times we didn't embrace what we did, and that's what I try to tell you know, especially Chase today. I said, embrace where you're at because it's not going to be this way forever. Yeah. I said, you know, things will change. And I said, it may be difficult now, but embrace where you're at and and, and, and try not to worry about stuff as much. And and that's, I, I worried about a lot of things. But but then as time went on, I looked back on it, and some of the stuff I was worried about is, is the least important thing on the face of the earth yeah. at some points in time. So yeah. here you go. When the Winston Million program was announced prior to the 1985 season, did you – have any reaction to it was that a goal that you guys set out or was that something that evolved as races started to pile up let me tell you i was sitting in the waldorf when they announced that deal and i was and uh, was it jerry long with with Winston? yes sir yeah he was he was going through the program i'll never forget it. i mean i'll never forget it as long as i live i was sitting there at the table and we'd had a good year uh, you know 84 was a good year for us and i said okay we're gonna we're gonna give a million dollars to the guy that can win three of these four races and you know if you win daytona and you win you know uh talladega and you win charlotte and you win or win darlington well i hadn't won at daytona and i hadn't won here and i hadn't won there <laughs> but i won at charlotte yeah you know Man, that'd be nice. And that's, you know, I was thinking to myself, man, that'd be nice. And that's all I could think. <laughs> <laughs> and, and lo and behold, here we are right in the middle of it when the season started. And I had, it was, 
I mean, I, I'll guarantee if you went to Vegas and put odds on it, it'd have been a, you could have probably won the lottery easier, you know. So I don't Wow. Know. You win the Daytona 500, and then you go to Talladega, and you have an oil fit and break loose and all that, lose close to a couple of laps. What was your thinking while you were sitting on pit road as the crew was fixing what was wrong? I didn't really, probably didn't think anything. I mean, just other than, hey, can you fix it? What can we do? What are we doing? Uh, and that's about it. I mean, I don't, I don't recall what I was thinking at the moment, but I'm sure it was probably race-related. Yeah. You go back out on the racetrack, almost two laps down, and you make those up without a caution. How? Well, you you got uh, you got to understand the the era of what we were racing against. You know, when when we're when we're in the garage area, you know we were you know you're watching all other guys kind of doing their things, and they're you know you normally feel like the race pace is going to slow down. Well, yeah. Daytona and Talladega normally don't, you know, because you get in a draft and you turn more RPMs. So most of the guys were putting gears where their engines would turn more RPMs rather than less RPM. So we're sitting there in, in you know, we're in a garage and, and kind of, I'm kind of, you know, listening to these guys and, you know, we're doing this and that and, and we gear our car higher. And so we're turning less RPM. So it's, it's easier on the motor. It's not as taxing on the motor. Well, you know, the race starts out, and it unfolds, and, you know, we're kind of rolling along there. And, well, the race pace picks up pretty good. Well, heck, most of them guys blow their motors up. I mean, you look at the, you look at the attrition, especially Daytona and Talladega back in that era. It was pretty bad. And, you know, then most of the guys is is they're out of engine because they're turning more RPMs than what their motor will let them. So they'll get to a point and they'll nose over and they'll they'll make less power when they get to a point. And and even if they live through the race, so we're sitting there and 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 we're kind of figuring all this. And and I mean, it was just we had a good slick race car, and it was you know Ernie Ernie at the point in time I think is is the most underrated motor guy on the planet. Oh, yeah. yeah. I, I mean, yeah. I've said that a thousand times. I mean, he's he's not the most politically correct guy. <laughs> but I'm telling you what, I've watched him work weeks hand-grinding cylinder heads back yeah. in that day. And, and he made good power, good reliable power, and... And shoot, that was a key. To, that was ninety percent the key of our success. I mean, he he usually we had very few motor failures in those times. And I mean, he was just he was such a perfectionist and so anal about what he did. It it was crazy. But as far as his people skills, he was <laughs> he was probably a little rougher than the rest of yeah, us. And we yeah. were all rough at that point in time. But. Uh, but anyway, the, it just kind of unfolded to, to fall right into our hands by the way everything unfolded that particular day. You know, and as time went on, things changed, you know, and people wised up to what you needed to do race-wise. But, but I don't think they were prepared for what the racing did. And, and you know, it's just like as, as you get older and you race and you kind of get set in your ways and a guy comes along and does something a little different, you look at him and say, well, you can't do it that way. Well, they prove you wrong, and, that, yeah. and that's kind of what we did. You know, we kind of did things because, you know, we, we weren't a part of the established team, so 
we did things what we felt like was the correct way, and it went against the grain of what the racing world would have done. So here you go. And, and like I said, it just kind of fell. Everything just fell into place. For children with chronic medical conditions, Victory Junction means friends, fun, freedom. That's because we provide a medically safe environment where kids who live in a world of hospitals and doctor's visits can laugh, play, and discover all they can be, all at no cost to their families. Victory Junction inspires confidence, builds self-esteem, and changes the life of every camper who comes through our gates. Find out how you can change a child's life. Go to victoryjunction.org. Steve, one of the things that really stood out from the first segment of the interview that I did with Bill was the struggles mm-hmm. that his team went through and the lengths that they had to go through to not only make ends meet, but to actually literally make it to the racetrack. There was a 1978 story in Grand National Scene that talked about how fans took up a collection right. to get him to the racetrack in Michigan in the fall of 1978. And even then, so very, very early in his career, he had that kind of fan support. But the fact is, they were having to pass the hat (laughs) to get him to the track. You know, that's not really unusual. Now, pass the hat, yes, it is. But struggling to make races, no, it's not. A lot of people forget the majority of the teams throughout the 70s and early 80s were the so-called independent teams. They did not have factory support, and they didn't have big sponsorship dollars. The minority were the high-powered teams, and you could count them on one hand. Not unusual to see a family-owned organization try to get started in uh, in NASCAR. The Rudd family tried to do it that way. And now here comes the Elliott family. No one was surprised that they were struggling. They weren't the only one. But passing a hat should have told us all that maybe there was a fan base that Bill had that was going to be very beneficial to him down the road. Steve, you knew him back in that time of his career. What was he like at the racetrack back then? Was his head always under the hood? (laughs) Just about, just about. But to talk with him, which, you know, was kind of a struggle because he was a quiet guy. He was a a shy guy. Uh, He did not seek out media by any stretch of the imagination. I think it's appropriate that you say that because in the interview, he actually did say that when he was in high school, he couldn't stand up in front of two or three people, much less make an appearance in front of hundreds at some sponsor event. Right. You could sense that about him. Uh, Nobody really could have predicted back then the heights he would reach in NASCAR. The fact if he'd had disappeared in two or three years, that would have been nothing unusual whatsoever. But he hung in there until he got his break down the road. Ultimately, what separated him from the pack? Because there was very much a time when he was in that independent driver mold of James Hilton, Elmo Langley, Richard Childress, Buddy Arrington. Right. You know, what separated him from that pack to become the legend that he became? I think what separated him was two things. I think he had a very good fundamental knowledge of how a race car works, uh, which wouldn't surprise anybody knowing that his father was a Ford dealer, Father George. Uh, Second thing was, I think he had talent. He had driving talent. 
he was taking less than good or less than great uh, equipment and doing very well in it. And third, uh, I'll be very honest with you, uh, the, I think the fact that he was quiet and somewhat shy struck a chord with the fans, you know. Okay, the media made fun of him. That includes me. I called him Huck Finn. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> he yeah. reminded me of Huck Finn, and uh, that sort of caught on. But that, still, he had the, he had that. I guess the best words for it, he had that good old country boy Southern charm. He really did, and people wanted to see him succeed because of it. He was not the mold of the flashy type of driver. You know, he was quite the opposite. I have to think that that had a certain amount of appeal. Two figures, I think, were very, very instrumental in helping Bill Elliott get to where he got. Number one, I think, was Benny Parsons, because Benny rented the Elliott team an Oldsmobile, right. of all things, for a race in Atlanta. And also, it was Benny Parsons who made the connection with Harry Melling. That was yeah, pretty big. That was pretty big. And I tell you what, Benny recognized everything about Bill that I just said because Benny was that type of guy. It's always been said he was a Detroit cab driver. That's not true. Uh, he worked in Detroit, but he was raised in the North Wilkesboro area by his grandmother. Wilkes County. That's right. Yes, sir. And so he recognized that, that small-town country charm that Bill had, and he felt an affinity for him. So he gets the support from Melling, gets a little bit of breathing room, starts having a little bit more consistent success. 1983, he wins his very first race at Riverside. 1984, he wins three races, and he also has sponsorship for the full season from Coors. Right. And I asked him about the attention that he started to receive at that point when the success started rolling in. And Steve, I think that's really when he opened up because he said at one point that when he got in the race car, put the window net up, put his helmet on, that's when he was doing his own deal. That's when he was at peace. And the time that he started to have some success introduced him to a side of NASCAR I don't think he really knew about. He certainly didn't care about it. And that is media and fan attention. The more successful you become, the more attention you draw. And you have to respond to that attention. And being the, the kind of person Bill was, that was very difficult for him to adapt to. Steve, Bill Elliott is a guy who was so uncomfortable in front of the media and talking to fans. It's certainly not anything that he sought out. In no, no. way, shape, form, or fashion was he putting on airs, was he playing the big shot, the superstar. But that's a guy who eventually won 16 Most Popular Driver Awards. Right. And you touched on it before, and it's something that I wanted to address. I think that he became so popular despite his kind of reluctance to seek out the press and the fan attention was the fact that fans could see themselves in Bill Elliott. He was just a good old country boy from the hills of North Georgia, and he could drive a race car. He right. could drive the wheels off a race car, and so many of those fans sitting in the stands watching him race could see themselves in his yeah. place. I think you hit upon it real well. Uh, and I'll, I'll remind our listeners of one thing. Bill got to be much more adept at dealing with the fans and the media. In fact, there came a time when he was, he was quite adept at it and very good at it. But like you said, the image that he gave off to the fans when he came into the sport and started to grow in it was the one they appreciated. 
Okay? It's a good old Southern country boy, no airs, anything like that. Quite the opposite of what we saw from Daryl Waltrip. Now, he's also a Southerner, no doubt about it. I don't think you could pick any two drivers oh, from that area different. who were any more different. And and Daryl, you know, he was he was a smart aleck. Uh, he was cocky, but he too could drive a race car. But still, he never really approached during this particular point in time. He never really approached Bill's popularity for that reason. It was not the driving ability; it was who he was at that time. Now, I remind you, Daryl changed too. By the time uh, the 90s rolled around, he was an elder statesman, and he actually won the most popular driver twice. Yes, he did. So he adapted a different way. Bill, the man himself, this is very important, even though he adapted to the media and to the fans, he never really changed who he was. And I'll give you two examples of that. He won the most popular driver award so many times that I got an idea. I was the president of the NMPA, which awarded the most popular driver. What did you do? I went to him and said, hey, how about this? Would you like this? You know, we've already named our driver of the year after Richard Petty. How about if we call this award the Bill Elliott NASCAR Most Popular Driver Award? And he said, and you don't have to worry about it anymore. You'll be ineligible for it. I'll do it. I'll do it. <laughs> Just tell me what you're doing. I'll do it. <laughs> did he really? Yes, he did. He did. He, he was willing to do that. Unfortunately, it never came about. But then a few years later, uh, here's another example of Bill never changing who he really was. He came to the Waldorf Astoria in New York to again received the most popular driver award. Only reason he came to New York for the NASCAR awards banquet. So I saw him walking through the lobby with a bag full of groceries. And I said, where are you going? <laughs> he said, <laughs> he said, I'm going up to my room. I'll watch TV and eat dinner. And I got my dinner right here. Wow. I said, Bill, you're in New York. Do you have any idea we could go out and eat? And he said, I'm just not that type of guy. I'll see you later. <laughs> so I don't think the man ever changed who he actually was, but I do think he adapted to the surroundings that NASCAR provided him. I'm Rusty Wallace, and you're listening to the Scene Vault Podcast. Steve, the May 21st, 1981 issue of Grand National Scene carried coverage of the spring race at Dover. And Steve, I don't know, man, do you want to try to explain what happened? <laughs> or are you going to put me on the hot seat? <laughs> Welcome to the hot seat. <laughs> For starters, the headline over the race lead read, Ridley wins in bizarre Dover finish. And yeah, you say that. Yeah, and then some. Absolutely. Steve, I think part of the problem was just 32 cars started the race and only 13 finished for whatever reason. Right. They had a wreck, engine, transmission, clutch. Well, Neil Bond, for example. Yeah. He was leading the race by, I think, oh, four or five laps at one point. Yeah. And then he blew his engine. And that, to me, started the whole thing. Well, here's the deal, I think, <laughs> in a nutshell. Jody Ridley was in third place with 42 laps to go, and Steve, he was in third place four laps down. Four. four. Count them. One, right. two, three, four. Four laps down, running in third place. Then things happened. Then things happened. Neil Bonnet right. was leading, blew an engine, 
with 41 laps to go. And Steve, that day, he had just absolutely blown the competition away. He had led 403 laps. Right. And had a two-lap lead on second place, Kel Yarbrough. And this, guess what? I believe something happened to old Kel, too. That's right. (laughs) Poof. Jody lost another lap. He was five laps down when Kel blew up on lap 481, which supposedly made Jody Ridley the leader. According to the rundown that I saw on Racing Reference, Jody Ridley became the leader on lap 481 and led the last 20 laps of the race. However, wouldn't he had to have unlapped himself? That's the way I thought. I would have thought that he would have led the last 15 laps. Right. You know, if Kel was the leader and Jody was was five laps down, Kel could have come in, and if it had been a blown tire, he could have spent a couple of laps changing, and Jody would have only been three laps down. Right. So I'm not a scorer, so, you know, I I don't know how all that works. Actually, the whole issue began when the race was over. Judy Allison, Bobby's wife, and Bobby oh, was driving Judy. for Harry yeah. and Neary. Yeah. yeah, She was keeping a score in the pits, and she had Bobby running 501 laps. Yes, yeah. which meant that he would have been a lap ahead of Jody, yeah. at least a lap ahead of Jody. So she said, "Do you want to have a recheck done here?" And Harry said, "I sure do. I'm convinced we are a lap ahead, and we won the race." So NASCAR spent about 20 minutes. 20 minutes afterwards discussing <laughs> that situation and didn't change a thing about it. They gave Jody the victory. Now, Bobby Allison didn't want to raise the ruckus about it too much because not only was it the first win for Jody, but it was the first, first win, win for, for Junie Donlevy, yeah. Yeah. his team owner. Yeah. He'd been around since that first Southern 500. Yes, he had. So you don't want to darken any way his success that day. But it still was a baffling situation because on lap 480, one lap before Jody supposedly took the lead, the NASCAR scoring didn't show anybody leading the race. <laughs> there was some kind of communications foul-up <laughs> yeah. that took place about this time. And uh, about 10 laps later, it showed Dale Earnhardt in third place, a lap down, and he had not run that high the entire race. All of a sudden, within the 10-lap uh, period, he was uh, running in third place at that particular time. So, obviously, there was some kind of communications foul-up that made the scoring go a little bit awry at Dover that day. Steve Dale finished third, a lap down, and, <laughs> man, this scoring was all kinds of messed up that day. On lap 490, scoring sheet showed that fourth place, D.K. Ulrich, was 14 laps down. Ah, but those were the good old days, right? <laughs> sure. Fourth place, 14 laps down, 10 to go. But Steve, when the final results were posted, he was only nine laps down. So in the final 10 laps, he made up five laps. <laughs> DK Ulrich had that nitrous oxide bottle to <laughs> hooked back up. <laughs> now, at this time, there was no computer scoring. Very important. That was all done by... Hands and eyes of the scores in the stands. And there were no scoring loops embedded in the racetrack. There was none of that. It was all done by hand in the scoring stand and in the pits. And the most important thing to remember about that Dover race is this. Morris Metcalf was NASCAR's score, official chief score. And he was in charge of nearly every single race they did. About three of them, though, 
a year he didn't do. And that was taken over by NASCAR's other scorer, Earl Sappenfield. Now, Earl Sappenfield was the scorer at the 1978 Dixie 500. <laughs> <laughs> where they couldn't tell whether it was Richard Petty oh, or Donnie oh. Allison who had won oh, the race. No. And wow. both Allison seemed really complained about the situation, but they declared Richard the winner, and he came up to the press box, gave his entire interview when the phone rang, and they told Richard to take the call. And he took the call, hung up the phone, and he said, Well, boys, I got to go. They're getting this race to Donnie Allison. Now darkness is falling, and we're trying to figure out still who won the race. Finally, it was officially given to Donnie. Adding to the controversy, consternation, frustration, whatever you want to call it, at Dover, NASCAR makes their decision, and they leave. Exactly. They split. So there's nobody there to answer the questions of the media and the competitors. They're out of there. And they're on their way to Sambo's. (laughs) (laughs) And this happens just a few years after the Atlanta incident I just described. Yeah. And after that incident... Bill France Jr., the president of NASCAR, says, we really have egg on our face after this one. Well, <laughs> they had a whole omelet. <laughs> the same situation in Dover and nobody from NASCAR around to comment on it. Yeah, now, that just added fuel to the fire. Yeah, Dover commented on it. They say, we have to go by what NASCAR gives us. However... One official said this, not me. Anytime they want to bring Morris Metcalf to our track, we sure will welcome him. <laughs> not a good day for Earl Sappenfield. And I don't mean to you no. know, besmirch him in any way. It's just a series of circumstances. All of this was set up against Jody Ridley and Junie Donlevy winning that race. And nobody, it was kind of an awkward position to be in because as badly as Bobby and Harry Rainier and Waddell Wilson, their crew chief, yeah. wanted that victory. They knew the kind of reputation That's, that Junie yeah. Donlevy had. Right. You know, let's face it. Uh, Junie Donlevy was uh, one of the greatest team owners in NASCAR, not because he won races. Yeah, because he was there. For years and Period. years and years and years. And you would never, ever find a nicer man than Junie Donlevy. Never. I've said that many times. And so when you have that kind of reputation, you don't want to be the person to mar it in any way, shape, or form. And that's why Bobby and his team didn't raise too much of a stink. Jody had won the 1980 Winston Cup Rookie of the Year for Junie. And they won that award, but they weren't exactly one of the front runners. And Jody said in this issue, he said, I've won around 450 races in sportsman cars. It was hard for me to adjust last year to being an also-ran. I knew it was just a matter of time before everything went our way. Today, it did. And he was right about that. Unfortunately, Jody and Junie would never win again as a team. They lasted until the end of the 1982 season, I believe. And after that, Jody went back to being a part-timer. And this was Junie's only win. Only one of his long yeah, career. only win, and it was Jody's only win at that level. Right. So in Pat Howe's sidebar, Jody kind of addressed the controversy, and he said, when Neil went out, I looked to see where I was, but the scoreboard went blank. See? It does that once in a while. <laughs> it does. Yeah. And that doesn't mean there should be any flaw in the scoring itself. But in this case... Some way, somehow, NASCAR's official scoring didn't really have a leader at 480 laps. 
he went on to say, my earplugs had come loose for some reason, and I pulled it out, and I couldn't hear very good. But I did hear them tell me not to let Bobby get away. So, Steve, long story short, Jody Ridley is the winner, and Bobby Allison, in one way, shape, form, or fashion, (laughs) he missed out on the victory. So, 85 wins? Maybe, just maybe, Bobby has 86 wins. (laughs) Yes, I went there. (laughs) Now, Steve, (laughs) don't know how I follow up on that one, but Steve, I love going through these old newspapers. A scene on the circuit story in this very issue mentioned a Josephine H. Josie Sanders who lived near the fairgrounds racetrack in Birmingham. And Miss Josie, she evidently loved her some racing. And on top of that, she was known as Josie the Voodoo Woman. Oh, my goodness. And this story is complete with a picture, and it's awesome, man. She's got that cigarette hanging out of her mouth, and she's doing the voodoo face and all that. Pretty cool. So Yeah, but she was not alone in NASCAR. There was a fellow that used to come to the races. He was overweight. He wore shorts and a T-shirt. He was real scruffy looking. His nickname wasn't Sasquatch, was it? (laughs) (laughs) That would have been a good one for him. But he was called Billy the Hex. And somehow he would get into the infields of racetracks and he'd be watching the race, carrying a handful of papers. I don't know what he had written on. But if he saw a driver do something that he didn't like, he would actually take his hands and rub his fingers together like this. (laughs) I know you can't see it, but this is what he's doing. And he was giving the guy a hex. He was going to hex him. And, you know, there were a lot of competitors that didn't mind having him around to do just that. Now, Hal Needham, several years later. Oh, I know where you're going on this one, I think. (laughs) Decided he would bring a New Orleans voodoo figure to the race in North Wilkesboro. And he did. And I saw that guy. And he was dressed as dapper as anyone could be. Fishtails, top hat, vest, everything you want. But he never left the inside of that holler. And you know why? Dale Inman was outside saying as loud as he could, if you let that guy come out here, I'm going to kill him. (laughs) (laughs) You don't mess with Dale, no. (laughs) He did not like that at all. So voodoo, hex, uh, black magic, they've been part of NASCAR for years. Well, Miss Josie, (laughs) the story says that the competitors at Birmingham, she would provide food, drink, advice, advice on race day and then she was quoted as saying there is more much more but i don't want to talk about it let's just say i play a part in who wins (laughs) (laughs) oh boy i don't mean to harm anybody it's just that in a close race involving my boy (laughs) i'm going to put some hex on that other car okay now the rest of the story ah the kicker to this whole thing all right tell me red farmer had been her favorite driver an alabama guy there in Birmingham, but he had evidently done something to tick her off, so she kicked him <laughs> to the curb. <laughs> and so by the time this story was published, she listed David Pearson, Mike Alexander, and Jody Ridley. Oh, no. <laughs> Neil, Kale, now you really know what happened. <laughs> Might be a good thing to have some voodoo or mojo on your side. And Steve, this issue, it is, what, 38 years old? And it's still as awesome today as it was the day it hit mailboxes. Another SOC item seen on the circuit item in that paper talked about Ronnie Thomas 
the oh, I know long this story. <laughs> the longtime independent driver. He was fined two hundred and fifty dollars and lost his driver's license for ninety days. <laughs> after he took his race car for a joyride on the roads near his home in Christiansburg, Virginia. <laughs> Imagine that. No headlights, no windshield wipers, no turn signals, and he's out there. Well, he said... ball tires. And he seemed, at first, to be very contrite in the story. He said, well, I reckon now that I look back on it, I shouldn't have done it. I would have done things a bit differently. Okay, so that's fairly contrived. Oh, yeah, but uh, go ahead. Okay, all right. Well, this is what he would have done differently. (laughs) I don't know. If only I'd had softer tires on that car, they'd still be chasing me. (laughs) (laughs) On top of driving an illegal car when it comes to cars on the road, do you think maybe he might have been speeding a tad? How about that, Ronnie Thomas? (laughs) Yes, sir. Gives us something to talk about here on the Scene Vault Podcast. Steve, before we go, I think we do need to mention Brenda Jackson, who was Dale Earnhardt Jr.'s mom and Kelly Earnhardt Miller's mom. Correct. The former wife of Dale Earnhardt Sr., of course. She passed away this week. And yeah, that was a pretty big loss. Yeah, she had a long battle with cancer. Yeah. I know the the family grieved over her loss, but at the same time, uh, they said that uh, at least she was no longer in pain or having to fight a dreaded disease and she had gone to her proper rest. And Steve, here's a story. And I don't know that I've told it before. I don't even know that you know it, but 1998, I was the Bush series editor at Sane. And at the end of the year though, my wife, Jeannie had a miscarriage Hmm. and I was not able to go to the last race at Homestead where, you know, junior had clinched his first championship. And Steve Dale Earnhardt Jr. called us from the racetrack to say that he was sorry. Hmm. And in that message, he said that he was sorry. He had heard what happened. He said, I know, Rick, that you're trying to get in touch with me for an interview about the championship and all that. He said, don't worry about it. You do what you have to do with Jeannie. And whenever you get clear of all the doctors and everything, I will come meet you wherever you want to meet. And in that time, that was obviously very, very hard. I will always respect the fact that Dale Jr. took the time to do that. It says a lot about his true character. Yeah, I think it does. And and again, I don't want to give the impression that Dale Jr. and I were best buddies or anything like that. We weren't. But I think it does say something about who he was as a person. And when I heard about his mom, that was the first thing that really kind of popped into my mind was that moment where he took time out of his schedule to console somebody. So I know what he's going through. I lost my mom. I lost my dad. So I I know a little bit about what he's going through. Well, as you said, it says a lot about his character. And uh, the way he responded to you after your loss is the way that I hope everybody responds to his loss. He deserves it. Finally, I do want to thank my best friend, Joe Step for putting together the new intros. Hopefully, you guys have noticed it and enjoyed them. Also, I'd like to thank Peter Salino and the team at Centire Media for their belief in this show. Because, Steve, we are getting some traction on this deal. That's very good. And certainly, we couldn't do it without the help of the listeners through PayPal or Patreon. We certainly couldn't do it without with the help of your friends.